Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 114 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, college football fans and Husker fans. Yes, this is College Football Throwdown, back for another podcast by college football fans for college football fans. This was a bye week for our beloved Nebraska Cornhuskers, um, so it'll be less talk about uh, them this week uh, until we get to the previewing of our upcoming game against Purdue. Uh, instead, we're going to focus on the games from week eight of college football and uh, what's coming up in the following week. You know, some of the cool upsets that happened, a little discussion of the new overtime rules in college football. So there's plenty to dive into. Absolutely. All right. Before we dive into all that, uh, we do have our beverages to crack, as is our tradition. Uh, I'm changing yeah. it up a bit this week. I have a Angry Orchard hey. Apple Hard Cider this time. Ah, okay. Okay. Yep. That's becoming uh, very popular for sure. I am back to enjoying my first uh, since my arrival here in the great state of Arizona. Uh, number 48. Uh, I am uh, drinking a kilt lifter, Scottish style amber ale, something uh, that I have grown fond of and wish I could get when I'm up in Michigan, frankly. Uh, I haven't figured out how to do that just yet, but, but it's a wonderful, wonderful Scottish ale. It's a nice amber beer and uh, goes down very smooth. All right. Very nice. Well, cheers here, Dad. Cheers to you, my son. Here we go. And I can't believe we were at 114 already. Just seems like we did the hundredth episode. Bizarre. <laughs> yep. Crazy how time flies. I mean, we were joking at, at a call at work today that we're nearly at 2022 somehow when it still feels like 2020. Right, right. That's true. Yeah. So this whole this whole time's been a blur, but that's how it goes. Um so uh, I was actually at a film festival this past weekend. Um, I did glance a little bit at the scores on my phone, but I wasn't really actively watching any of the games. Um, I did watch a lot of the highlights for the big games that we'll be talking about today. So I got a general sense of what went on in them. And the one we had our eyes on was, of course, our upcoming opponent, um, Purdue, who was coming off of a surprise victory over Penn State, getting to play Wisconsin at home. Um, so we gave our predictions on the previous podcast, and uh, you predicted that Wisconsin would win 28-24, uh, to 24, and I decided to be the kind of uh, uh, glasses half full person and think that mm -hmm. Purdue would be able to continue that momentum and the game plan they had. Or I'm sorry, it wasn't against Penn State. It was against Iowa that they had that upset um, because I thought yes, yes. Wisconsin was a similar team to Iowa uh, in terms of their strengths and weaknesses and all that. Uh, so I predicted that Purdue would win 24-17 uh, to 17 over Wisconsin. Um, but in the end, uh, you turned out you were correct. Um, Wisconsin won 30-13 uh, to 13 in a game where, frankly, uh, the two scores that Purdue did get, one was a pick six and the other was off of a turnover where they had like the ball at the 40 or the 30 yard line. Um, so they were kind of able to get two easier scores that way. And other than that, their offense really struggled the whole game. They ended up having five turnovers. So kind of hard to win when you're doing that. 
well and 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 um wisconsin was in their backfield uh sacks you know had multiple sacks uh very dominant defensive performance by wisconsin's defense Mm -hmm. now did you get to watch this game live i did i watched that game quite a bit of that game and uh i i also watched uh quite a bit of the uh, Oklahoma uh, Kansas game and the um, uh, the other Big Ten game that we were just talking about Penn State uh, oh. the Penn State Illinois game I watched that pretty much from cover to cover all right well you got some good games then that Saturday yeah it was it was a you know not having to deal with the pissed offness of of a Nebraska game uh, it was actually quite fun <laughs> certainly helps when you have that distance from the the teams right um right and uh yeah i would give a lot of credit obviously to wisconsin's defense we know they've been great this whole year and um Purdue's quarterback through some ugly uh picks in the game uh now wisconsin did yes. a turnover twice themselves there was kind of i think a couple of times in the yeah. game where one team turned it over and then the team that received that turnover turned it back over almost immediately um right so very soon yeah. yeah it wasn't the prettiest game in that regard um uh, but uh purdue you know purdue's defense is able to slow them down but not enough um and uh wisconsin you know pretty much took control in the second half um and purdue really wasn't able to uh to catch up with them partially because they kept throwing the ball uh into the hands of wisconsin and when they tried to run it they were getting nowhere <laughs> You are correct. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that, um, uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, Wisconsin's really had given them enough turnovers and opportunities that uh, Purdue really could have, if they had played a more clean game, could have made that a very interesting football game. Because, you know, uh, Tex, or excuse me, um, um, Wisconsin's offense made enough mistakes and presented enough opportunities for Purdue that had Purdue been playing at a higher level uh, like they did the previous week, they certainly had chances to win that football game. Right. Yeah. Weird how, you know, they can perform so well on the road against Iowa, you know, upset this, uh, you know, number uh, two team in the two. country. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and then go home right after that, you know, victory with all that momentum and excitement and then, kind of, you know, succumb to the pressure. Um, but that can happen to teams that, you know, aren't used to being in that situation. Well, and, and also when you, when you, uh, when you break down the Iowa victory for Purdue, they had a, a, a wide receiver who had an absolute freakish career day. Okay. Um, who is a, who is a phenomenal wide receiver? Don't get me wrong. But to expect that he's going to be able to do that every week is tough to expect, right? And then you have a great defense who comes in with a defensive game plan that says, if we can stop this guy, we can stop them. And, and they were right. <laughs> That's the bottom line. I mean, they, they were able to take a bell out of it and basically say, okay, if you guys are going to win, if you're going to beat us, you're going to have to beat us with somebody else. And uh, that's what good defenses do. And that's what Wisconsin did. And, uh, and they had no second bell. You know, they had no other bell to ring in terms of uh, producing consistent offense. Mm -hmm. Very true. <clears throat> Excuse me. One other game that we predicted last week was actually the USC Notre Dame game. Um, I, uh, I predicted that Notre Dame would end up winning 42-21. You predicted a closer game of 35-31. 
and it ended up being a, a bit lower scoring, a 31 to 16. Um, though, from what I saw from the score card, um, I believe most of USC's points came in the fourth quarter. Like, I believe it was like three to, you know, 21 or something like that for the majority of the game. So, uh, USC really couldn't get anything going until the end. So it seems like Notre Dame kind of controlled that one. Right, right. Yep. Uh, and you know, I did not uh, spend a lot of time watching that particular game as I, I was watching something else in the evening uh, when that game was going on. But, uh, but that, yeah, I, that's kind of what I expected was going to happen. Um, I mean, but yet at the same time, I just feel like Notre Dame's a good team, but they're not a great team. You know, so uh, they're going to do well, but are they, you know, a premier? I, I don't think so. And, you know, we'll see what happens as the rest of the year plays out and where they end up falling in the rankings and all that. But but uh, those are just two uh, mid, middle of the road teams there. Mm-hmm. And then um, you mentioned it earlier that uh, Oklahoma, Kansas game. Uh, which Oklahoma ended up winning uh, 35-23, but the score is a little misleading in that Kansas was actually in the lead for three quarters of that game. Uh, It was really some mistakes they made um, in letting Oklahoma get some big plays in the fourth quarter that really did them in, but uh, it was really looking like they were going to be able to pull off the upset at at home at Kansas. Um, you know, they were playing some physical football, which was good to see, um, and, uh, kind of put Oklahoma on the back foot until their, their quarterback really started getting some stuff together for them in the fourth quarter. Right. And, uh, their defense, uh, uh, Oklahoma's defense, uh, really didn't show up for most of that game. Like, I mean, Kansas was, I felt controlling the line of scrimmage, having, they they weren't just breaking one big play and then that's that's what was allowing them to score or whatever. They were driving the field pretty regularly. Kansas was very effective um, and uh, quite impressive actually, uh, given the the disparity in talent between those two clubs right now. And Kansas would probably be viewed as a team that has probably less talent than uh, you know just about every other Power Five program in the country. Uh, except for a small handful, right? So that's a team that that Kansas that that Oklahoma should be able to handle very easily, even with their you know C minus B plus um, kind of um, you know effort. Or I mean a B minus C plus type of effort. Um, so uh, kudos to Kansas. I think they got the right guy as their coach, and look out for them down the road three years from now. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. And there's one play in particular that a lot of people have been talking about. I'm seeing coverage of, I believe it was like a fourth and one or fourth and two for Oklahoma in that fourth quarter. And uh, the quarterback, Caleb Williams, hands the ball off to his running back. The running back gets stopped uh, short of the line of scrimmage and well short of the first down. And he's kind of getting stood up by the, um, by the defenders and this Williams kid, who's a young quarterback, just takes the ball out of his running back's hands and then runs with it and falls forward for a first down. And I, when I saw that on the highlights, I had to replay it a couple times because I was like, I've never seen that before. That was a, you know, that's a play that could have gone 
very badly. But I guess at the same time, even if you fumble it there, you're already, if you don't get it on fourth down, you're already giving the ball back. So I think it's actually a pretty risk reward wise. It's a worthwhile risk to take as a quarterback. And especially with the new rules that apparently allow people to stand runners up and basically put them into a vertical scrum and beat the shit out of them until you steal the ball, which has obviously happened in Nebraska a couple of times. This idea that uh, that uh, of not having having instead of what what would be referred to as a short whistle, having a very long whistle, which means they wait way too damn long. That 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 running back's forward progress had absolutely been stopped. He had taken two steps in which he was going backwards because the defenders were pushing him backwards. He was not getting out of the grasp. There were multiple Kansas players that had him secured. Uh, but, um, you know, wise uh, thing to do by that quarterback, no doubt about it. A very uh, heady play, risk play, sure, but, but heady play, knowing, understanding the circumstances of the game um, that allowed that to happen. In my opinion, forward, forward progress had stopped. That, that ball was down, the play was over, the whistle should have blown. The fact that it hadn't is bullshit. And, and I hate this rule, and I'd, I'd like to know who discussed what and how they arrived at that, thinking that this was a good idea versus <laughs> the way it used to be. I, I really don't understand what value that brought other than the fact that it legitimized the, the illegitimate victory by USC over Notre Dame in the year prior to this change in rule, which is referred to as the Bush push. I don't know if you remember that or not. I mean, you were a young, you know, you were, you were aware. Uh, do you remember that play when, uh, no. uh, when he was pushed, he was pushed into the end zone. Um, um, and, uh, for the critical end of game scoring play, uh, uh, you know, in a year in which USC was competing for the national title and he won the Heisman Trophy, Bush did, um, um, and it was total bullshit. It was a total push, okay, which at the time was, was illegal. You could not push, like offensive linemen couldn't come behind a running back and push them into the, over the line of scrimmage, you know, and get to advance the yardage. That, that's illegal back then. They changed the rule and allowed that. Since then, they've slowed this whistle blow down because it allows for this push to occur. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. It, it's totally unsafe, unnecessary, total bullshit. Right. Well, there was, uh, I forget which game it was because I watched all of these highlights back to back, but there was a game where it was a similar fourth and one, you know, just quarterback dive play, and they were definitely were stopped for a second short of the line, and then that kind of second right. push came in, and they kind of fell over the line and got the first down. Um, so that was an example yeah. of to exactly me- what you're talking about. To, to me, that, that, that's an extremely dangerous play. And you know what? When they end up breaking somebody's legs or worse, breaking somebody's neck or something like that because all of a sudden, uh, you know, 600 or 900 pounds, three linemen come barreling in there and pushing somebody and somebody whose leg is in a precarious situation just gets snapped because of all that massive push and, and force and weight. Um, and then they'll revisit that rule and probably change it back to where it was. I, I just do not understand why they changed that rule. That's not football. Yeah, and I said something similar on the previous podcast, I believe, because I also kind of hate it when the when 
it takes forever for the whistle to get blown, you know, when forward progress is clearly stopped. And yeah, it seems like those are some of the situations where, right. you know, a player is uh, prone to injury. Right. I mean, arms get broken, jaws get broken. Because when you stand a guy up like that, then you're going in there and you're hammering that guy. You're beating the hell out of his arms. You're doing anything to punch that ball out. Right, because mm-hmm. the whistle hasn't blown, so I can do it. Right, so my the other my teammates have already secured him. He's not breaking free and going to advance the ball. Now he's mine to just rip him apart. And so people come in and are just hammering and just doing bad shit. And I, I don't understand how that's good for the game. Mm-hmm. That's not a good play. Yeah, I would agree. So, I would agree. Yeah. Um, another interesting game from this past week was um, Pittsburgh versus Clemson. This is an interesting situation where actually Pittsburgh was ranked 23rd in the country and Clemson was not because they've had a couple of uh, unexpected losses this year. And uh, this was added to the list because it was a 27-17 victory uh, for Pittsburgh. And I was just watching the highlights, so I don't pretend I got a full picture of the game. But I was surprised at how, uh, you know, how many missed tackles there were by Clemson's defense or, you know, just their offense's general um, lack of uh, getting any nice. momentum, you know, like you'd see on the highlight reel, you know, it would go from one Pittsburgh possession at, you know, 10 minutes to another Pittsburgh possession at, you know, five minutes and you knew, okay, so Clemson got the ball and didn't do anything, you know, in that time period. Right. 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 No, I know. And, and the thing is, is that, um, um, you know, it's just true. Uh, Clemson is just not very good this year. Now, they have a ton of talent on that team, but they lost a lot of talent. They lost a lot of guys. And, and, and when you lose that kind of talent, it's not just about the talent drain. It's also about the, the discipline and the uh, uh, mentality, right? The, the, the commitment to excellence, all those kinds of things. You can disrupt that, that lineage a little bit, right? And all of a sudden, these guys who are used to being on the other end of, of big scores – you know, they're not used to having to fight for every a game. You know, they're not used to being beat by good teams. They only lose to great teams, right? And so all of a sudden, their whole psyche and, and mental um, uh, approach to the game, mental toughness, it, it takes a big hit. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond next year because uh, this year is already kind of in the chitter for Clemson uh, in terms of their expectations. But it, they have a lot of talent. So the question is, if they still have the, the right culture, they'll uh, emerge from this as a better team and next year probably be right back in the thick of things, right? If they don't, then there's a chance that there's a crack in the armor and they may have some struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you could see some of those cracks in like that unexpected uh, beatdown that they got by Ohio State in the semifinal last year, um, which kind of caught us off guard at how dominant Ohio State looked in that particular game. Um, but yeah, I hope to see them do better because I do like Dabo Sweeney as a coach, you know, and generally it's been fun to see like the Clemson and Alabama, you know, battling it out for uh, these different national championships. Um, but at the same time, you know, I get, uh, I, if I was, if I had a team I was rooting for in the ACC, I'm sure I'd feel a lot differently because Clemson's dominated that league for so long that I'm sure they're ready to have right. someone else step up to the plate. 
Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And it's a window of opportunity, ironically, for, uh, you know, the other traditional powers in that league, Miami and Florida State, to, to kind of emerge as the, as, uh, reemerge as the leaders. And yet neither of those programs are at the point in their uh, advancement or their development to seize on the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be somebody else for a while. Yeah, maybe. Very true. Um, and this was an interesting one. Um, I didn't really watch any of the game, but I just thought the score was crazy. Uh, Wake Forest, 70 points. Army, 56 points. So yeah. looking like a basketball game well, over here. <laughs> oh, and, and it was it was crazy. I mean, I didn't watch the game, but they kept uh, interjecting the updates into the game because it was so crazy, just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I really thought maybe Army was going to win it for a while, but Wake Forest just kept responding. Army would tie, then Wake Forest would just turn around and score again, and then Army would tie and then score again. And then I think at some point Army took the lead, like in the fourth quarter or sometime, um, and it looked like maybe things were going to go their way. And then the th- next thing you know, you know, Wake Forest scores, and then they score again, and it's over. But uh, um, it was obviously a crazy game. Yeah, yeah, no defense on that particular day. No. Um, None. Yeah, and then uh, this was interesting. Uh, undefeated Oklahoma State, ranked eighth in the AP poll, lost to Iowa State uh, 24-21 uh, in a game where um, – Oklahoma State had the lead in the fourth quarter, and Iowa State kind of drove down there to to get a touchdown, and then had to stop Oklahoma State to seal it up. So another cap in that coach's uh, or a feather in that coach's cap, you know, at his time at Iowa State. Yes, absolutely, and I think unexpected. I mean, I thought Oklahoma State was going to win that game pretty handily. So uh, very impressed that Iowa State was able to make that happen um, because little, they've had a disappointment. Right. For, for their new standards, you know, after having right. Matt Campbell, right. That's his I mean, name. Right. Matt. Cam- but they thought that going into the season, they were preseason ranked. Uh, many thought that they were going to be r- right there, maybe third or fourth in the big 12. Right. Uh, kind of just below Oklahoma and Texas. And, uh, um, but then they struggled early in the season, you know, got beat by Iowa, blah, blah, blah. And they're thinking, well, maybe they're not so good, but they, then they do this. So, uh, they may get, they may be getting their, their stride, you know, right at the right time now. And this is a, a minor question, but it just came up to me because I saw a news article that, of course, I, it was at Iowa State, so the Iowa State fans like stormed the field afterwards at, at this big upset and everything. And apparently, the Big Twelve commissioner said that he wasn't going to fine Iowa State for that. Even th- now, we've seen some other big upsets uh, in games previously in the season and other conferences uh, where fans have stormed the stadium, and the university has been uh, fined for that. You know, pretty significant amounts of money. What's your kind of stance on? what's the right thing to do in those situations? I don't think that anybody should be being fined because people storm the field. I think what you probably need to do is, uh, you know, make sure that you have security uh, team in place to, to discourage that activity, right? And to make sure that it's not going to happen, uh, which, you know, they've found ways to do that, right? Um, but uh, to keep the stampeding from happening, because people have died, uh, in those, you know, 
Uh, and so it can be an, a dangerous thing. Wisconsin, in fact, uh, uh, a stu- uh, 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 an attendee, I don't know if it was a student, I think it was, but an attendee to the game who stormed the field at Wisconsin and then they went, they were going to go through this gate and then the gate didn't open. And uh, all these people all rushed the field and the pressure crushed some people. So, I mean, it is a, it's a dangerous situation when that happens. But to find the university doesn't make any sense to me at all. Mm. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of leaning in that direction too. You know, I mean, I feel like those situations are rare when they happen. So might as well let the fans um, celebrate in the moment, you know, maybe, maybe that's like you say, that's kind of on the, the facility staff to kind of like have a plan in place for, okay, this is our protocol. If the fans storm the field, this is what you do, you know, to avoid a situation, like you said, where the gate doesn't open or whatever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I get that you're trying to hold the, the university accountable, that they have to have a plan in place for that sort of stuff to keep it from happening. But at some level, you, you've got a crowd of thousands of people and they want to storm the field. You know, almost anything you might put in place to try to minimize that or keep that from happening is not going to be foolproof. Right. Right. That there's going to be a way you, you hope that it's enough to just discourage them from trying. Right. That's what you're hoping. You're hoping you're giving them a, a show of force that's sufficient to keep them from trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the last game that we'll talk about, and probably the most surprising upset of the uh, of the weekend was uh, Illinois playing against number seven ranked Penn State and winning 20 to, 9, 20 to 18 in the ninth overtime of the game. Uh, now this is the same <laughs> Illinois team that beat Nebraska in the first game of the year and since then has done absolutely nothing. Uh, so as a Nebraska fan, it kind of made me good to feel like, okay, so we weren't the only ones that got like upset by this team. like uh, somewhere down- Right, and, and this is a Penn State team that was a top 10 team. Yeah, it was an impressive win for them. Um, and frankly, if I recall right, uh, it was um, that, uh, what do you want to say? Illinois was down by three points and this drive in like the fourth quarter and they actually scored a touchdown. They threw a touchdown pass, but then it got called back for some penalty and they had to end up settling for a field goal that brought the 16-16 to tie the the ball game, brought them into the overtime. Um, and but- actually there were two. There were two penalties during that sequence. They effectively scored twice on that, uh, scored touchdowns twice, and both of them got called back. That's right. Uh, it was awful. It was awful. The refereeing in that game was atrocious. It was pretty clear they were trying as best they could to make sure that Illinois didn't win that game, um, I believe. Again, I, I think that there is, whether it's uh, unconscious or conscious, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know how much of a conspiracy theorist I want to be, but, but I'm telling you right now, it, it is not lost on me how one-sided the refereeing was in that game. And Illinois had to overcome you know, the 11 state, uh, Penn State players and the ref to win that game. Right. And they did it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, I, I, and actually, I think the score was 10-10, right? Because then both teams went and scored two sets of field goals at the first two overtimes. Um to keep things yep. tied um, either that or they missed each missed a field goal. I don't remember, but regardless, no, I think they both made it. Yeah. They both made the field goals. And then, um, and I believe actually, I believe Penn state had some opportunities for field goals early in the game and they missed them, which obviously 
comes back to bite you um, in that overtime situation. Um, but uh, so it went to the third overtime, and this is actually where the new uh, rules for NCAA overtime got implemented. So at, once it gets to the third overtime, they uh, transition to both teams just have a chance at a two-point conversion. So they set up the field like it's a two-point conversion, have both teams give it a go, um, rather than playing out an entire um, series from you know the 25 or whatever they usually put it, uh, like they have in the past. I believe that was a response to the that 2018 game, uh, LSU versus Texas A&M, that went to seven overtimes of the standard overtimes and was a very long game. So I understand it from the perspective of, uh, you know, trying to cut down on the, the amount of time those players are out there on the field. Um, what did you think of the new system being able to watch it live? Well, it was interesting to watch since it was one of the first times I'd seen it. And it was a chuckle. But they have a huge oops in that whole series of because here's what happens uh every time the series once once you flip the coin for the first overtime and one person wins and one person loses they don't go through the coin flips anymore after that okay the other team just gets the option well the problem is is that what happened in that game which if you didn't watch it you didn't see this was you have penn state this was at penn state so when Illinois had the option uh, to um, uh, choose what they, where they wanted to, uh, uh, which side they wanted to defend, right? They chose to go away from the student section, right, to the other end of the field, and then and then Penn State. Every time when they had the option to choose which end of the field, they wanted it on the end of the field with the students. So between every one of these stupid little one play overtimes they were actually having to walk the entire length of the field. Okay. Both teams. I was wondering about that. Cause it's, yeah, it's, they were doing like... it. was <laughs> the third crazy and it is so stupid. So they've got to change that rule so that they basically say, okay, once we do this, we're going to play the next two overtimes on this end of the field, you know, something that limits the amount of those back and forth that they do. Because otherwise, it's not shortening the game. The players are having to walk hundreds and hundreds of yards. Coaches, everybody, right? It's just so time-consuming. And the thing is, is that, um, yes, there is some commercial opportunity there for the, the broadcast team, right? For the broadcaster uh, network. But even they stopped. They didn't have any more commercials lined up. So... <laughs> They just stayed there, right? It was weird. It was weird. And, and it took, so it wasn't, it wasn't shorter. I don't think it was easier on the players. In fact, I would argue that it was harder on the players. Uh, and, and it just got to where it was being, it was kind of stupid. So I think they need to change something in that rule setup that allows them to be somewhat equitable but there's a lot of stadiums that are just like Penn State's where one end of the field is where the, where the students are and the other end isn't. And they're going to uh, um, um, want to switch back and forth, right? That's going to become a common thing as this new overtime rule gets utilized more on, on, on more frequent occasions. Right. Yeah, I, I think what you propose makes some sense, you know, like to say 
okay, it, we're going to plan to do the, the next two overtime periods, you know, fully from this side or, this, you know, something right. like that. And then if it, if it goes to the third overtime period, then we'll, then we'll go, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and take the timeout, uh, to do that. Oh, that's the other thing. You know, each team gets a timeout every overtime. Mm. So it, I could see since it's a one play deal. Okay. I only have one timeout to use. If I'm a, if I'm a coach, I might consider a strategy where I call a last second timeout every time after the offense, my opposing team's offense gets on the field and, and lines up. So I know their formation and their personnel group. And then I call a timeout and give myself an opportunity to say, okay, do I have the right defensive personnel in there for that? And keep an eye on what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like yep. I could see a, a, a coaching strategy that says that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And, uh, and that would make it even longer because now you're throwing a bunch of, uh, of timeouts in there. Right. I mean, it, it could get stupid with basically standing around time, right? right? Not playing football time. And the whole idea is it, it was not, it was not shorter. And you know, the other, the game after it got delayed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was a disaster as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I don't know. You know, that's one of these group think things where the committee that put that together wasn't thinking about how this was going to play out. Right. Cause well, I, what they saw was not what they intended. Well, well, from the perspective of like, you know, cutting down on like the players hitting each other, you know, and getting tired over the course of overtime. I think it did succeed at that. Cause yes, you're correct that they were having to spend the time walking back and forth from end zone to end zone. But you know, that's not as strenuous as uh, you're getting hit in the face well, uh, on a play. Uh, that's true. That, that's true, Alex. But I'm telling you what, if you're an offensive lineman and you weigh 320 pounds and you're having to walk 80 yards, you know, basically every few minutes uh, back and forth after you've already played a 60-minute football game, I'm telling you what, you're getting stiff because you're not stretching. You're, you're walking, right? And it's not a full-stride kind of jog or what. I don't know. I just I think there's – those guys were getting fatigued in that, in that nine-overtime game the same way a, a, a team who played three or four overtimes in the old system would get fatigued. And, and it got to the point where I was worried that they were going to get into this deal where neither defense had enough energy or effort uh, left uh, to uh, stop them, you know, where they could get into a situation where everybody scores every time. And then what? Right. I you mean, know? <laughs> yeah, it, it is a funky system for sure. Cause that, like there was a lot, I mean, it, and it, at least maybe the way I watched it was ideal because I'd have to deal with all the the waiting in between games because it was exciting to see like, you know, okay, they went for it and they got stopped right at the goal line. You know, they didn't make it. And then we saw the same thing happen again. So now we're going to fourth overtime or whatever. Um, And now it's... And because it's a scoring play, you've got reviews in there, right? When somebody's really close, uh, right? Then they have to review. So there's reviews in there. I mean, it just took forever. It took forever. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't think about all the implications, um, which clearly right. this committee well, see, didn't either. Think... <laughs> no, right. That's the thing. This was a classic groupthink deal. Um, and now it is actually officially the game with the most overtimes at nine. Now, obviously, it's not as long as, you know, 
the some of the like that seven overtime game, right? Because you know each of those nine overtimes right. was only one play, so it's not quite comparable. Right. But I I I wouldn't be surprised if in the off season this year they adjust that rule. They've got to. I think it's not good the way it's set up now. All right. Okay, and then um, in terms of college football news, before we dive into uh, week nine of college football, there were a few interesting things. Um, Texas Tech fired their coach, Matt Wells, um, which is kind of interesting because they're five and three right now, which is obviously, you know, not like great, but it's not like terrible either. Um, Right. That's going to that's likely going to lead to a bowl game. Right. Well, they do still have I looked at their schedule and they had like Baylor and a couple other tough teams left on their schedule. So they may not, you know, get to uh, six wins. You know, that is possible for them. But um, I got to believe there's more to, you know, that firing than just the what's on the field this season. Right. And and that's similar to the, the, the situation down at LSU. I mean, there was more than just the fact that he wasn't winning on the field that caused Orgeron to get fired. I mean, these decisions are complex decisions that have to do with contracts and timing of those contracts and obligations on the part of the university bonuses paid if they're still the coach at this date, blah, 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 blah. So there's a bunch of things that work there. But at the end of the day, though, this guy was in his third year, I think. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So this is where the the people who are, you know, pitchforks and, you know, torches ready to carry Scott Frost out of town and burn him at the stake. Um, this is where they're at. Their, their point is, hey, you know what? Scott has had more than enough time. There are just not very many examples of uh, a head coach who's had, say, five years to get things turned around in a positive direction. And if he hasn't gotten it going by the fifth year, the chances that he does after that are pretty small. Okay. At, l- at least in the last 20, 25 years. It used to be that when, you know, television wasn't as big and not- nothing about football was as big as it is now, you know, a lot of guys would get seven years to, to rebuild a program. Uh, and then it became five. And now it's kind of become three. I mean, if it, yeah. you know, Scott is, is unusual in that he got a seven-year contract to begin with and then got an extension uh, here recently, last year or whatever, that has extended him even more. And so, you know, he's maintained his five years of compensation out in front of him so that, uh, you know, people couldn't question whether he was going to be the coach in terms of the recruiting thing. But the reality is, you, how long do you give somebody to turn that corner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure the part of that seven years that he got initially was, you know, something that he and his agent negotiated because he was the hot coach on the market then. If he didn't come to Nebraska, there were plenty of other uh, bigger programs, you know, that would have taken him. So, you know, he had, absolutely. He had that bargaining power. Yep, absolutely. And he... And he understood, although I think he's admitted since then that it was even worse than he thought, he understood that it was going to take some time to rebuild Nebraska's culture because he he understood that it was pretty bad, mm-hmm. right? And it was. He understood that there was a, yeah. And so, you know, that's why, you know, generally I've tried to be fairly patient with him. But the problem is, is that when you see him as the coach making bonehead decision after bonehead decision 
making choices in terms of his, you know, play calling and such, um, then that's what make that's what causes me to question whether he will ever be successful at Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Yep, very true, very true. And then uh, in the conference free alignment world, in the group of five, uh, the smaller conferences, the uh, AAC just added uh, six new teams. I think partially because some of their um, roster got brought over to the Big 12. So this is kind of a domino effect of that. So they are taking on Alabama, Birmingham, Charlotte, Florida Atlantic, North Texas, Rice, and Texas San Antonio. Um, and apparently both Conference USA and the Sunbelt Conference are also on the hunt for some new teams. Um, now, talking about this in terms of the main conferences, the Power Five, um, you know, it's like I said, it's pretty clear to see this as a domino effect of what the Big 12 did to uh, expand or keep their uh, keep their roster high after losing uh, Oklahoma and Texas. Um, what it did make me think about was that it is interesting that we, you know, we haven't heard any rumblings from the other ones, you know, like the Big Ten, the ACC, the Pac-12, you know, no real rumblings about conference realignment there in a while, even though I kind of predicted that, you know, I thought it would be in the Big Ten's interest to try to grab um, some other teams, you know, behind the scenes to try to combat the growing power of the SEC. Um, now, they do have that interconference pact, but we've already discussed how, you know, flimsy that that piece of paper is that that uh, agreement is written on. Um, so I, I I wouldn't be surprised if there is some uh, discussion behind the scenes still going on, you know, with some of those bigger conferences, but the, the silence is interesting. Uh, what's your take on that? I would 100% agree with you. I think that there is still conversation going on. I think that inevitably there's going to be more movement uh, because what's happening when, like you say, this domino effect, all these, you know, op- opportunities, these uh, potentials, right, are, are going away. These potential options for these conferences are going away. And so you have to really do the math and say, well, if all these other conferences go to this, these larger quantities, what does that mean for me in terms of maintaining my share of the television revenue market that I have or expanding it, right? And obviously, uh, the SEC was the wise one who struck first and with the, the right target, okay, and, and hit the home run. Uh, now, I, I really thought that if we had a good leader in the Big Ten, that they would have aggressively went out and and considered the possibility of moving from 14 to 16 at least, if not going all the way to 20, and um, and basically going out there and making us a coast to coast conference and 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 drawing in you know the USC's and some of the other teams, Washington, Oregon, you know other schools that were uh, like minded to us that were AAU schools in terms of the academic side, you know, and the research side, and that had major uh, um, athletic programs. And had the Big Ten been willing to do that, then they would have had something to go to the television partners with. Now I think they've missed on that opportunity, unless that's still going on quietly in the background. You know what I mean? It wouldn't surprise me if there's still some conversation going on between USC, Washington, Arizona, um, and Oregon, I think, were the four from the Pac-12 that 
might have made sense. And Stanford was the fifth one that we uh, thought would have made sense. And then if you got those five, then maybe you go to Notre Dame, who is not yet a full member of the ACC, and say, hey, Notre Dame, now we've got your traditional partners of USC and Stanford, who you play every year in football. We now have them as part of our conference. Go ahead and come on and join us, and let's get this thing done. And then that would be your, your six editions, okay, take you from 14 to 20, and you're done. And now you've got a coast-to-coast conference. The Big Ten is now a coast-to-coast conference. And you, and you figure out the, the, the details of how many pods you have and how you do your scheduling and all that. But at least you now have that group to negotiate collectively for television rights, which, frankly, this is all about television money. Yep. It's all about money. And that <clears throat> what you just described, if the Big Ten was able to pull it off, that would be quite a coup of, you know, getting some uh, big time teams to join the conference. Um, but well, the, I, the, th- the thing is, is that, that that group, I think, would would be the, 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 the group that if you could pull it off, would actually enhance the per team payout that a television contract would be w- willing to write. You know what I mean? Like like the ESPN's, uh, CBS, ABC, um, you know, who else? Uh, uh, Fox. Fox would be willing to write a check and say, this makes sense for us because the, the slam dunk was what the SEC did. They already had a great contract. They already have a great quantity of, of spectacular schools, and they just brought the two best schools from the Big 12. The Big 12, you know, it'll be interesting to see how well they compete both from a recruiting standpoint and from a, uh, a national championship getting into the mix kind of standpoint once that new league exists. Mm-hmm. You know, with BYU and those guys. Yep. Well, uh, I think they are being helped with it by the fact that uh, Cincinnati is having a great year so far, um, and they're now going to be a member of the Big 12, so there is that for them. But I'm also interested to see that because earlier in the year, we predicted that the Big 12 uh, wouldn't make it through by the time that all this conference expansion stuff was over, that they would basically dissolve. um, And we'll have to see if that plays out in the long term. Right, right. I still think there's a few more shifts that are going to happen. And I think some of that conversation is still going on. Yeah. I don't think it's done. No, probably not. Um, now looking ahead to week nine, uh, of course, the most important game must of course be the Nebraska game, uh, with us going up against Purdue. Uh, we're coming off of a much needed bye week. Um, I saw today that, um, uh, coaches said that both, uh, Ramir, and uh, Adrian are going to play on Saturday and they're both doing better physically, you know, having that little that time off to heal up. Um, and uh, the thing that I'm thinking about after seeing that Wisconsin game is that uh, I feel like with, with the extra time to prepare, I'm feeling pretty good that Shenander will have a good defensive plan um, ready to, you know, just kind of stuff the run and then try to pick off passes the way that Wisconsin did uh, in their game because their Purdue's quarterback was clearly shaken, you know, with with how many he threw, like three picks, I think, in that game, and a couple of them were ugly. Um, So he's not going to be feeling confident coming to that game. It's at Lincoln. Um, So all the signs to me are pointing to the fact that we should be able to slow them down a good bit uh, defensively with our uh, against their offense. 
Um, their defense against our offense is what I'm more concerned about because of how badly Adrian played in our previous game. And also, um, Purdue did force Wisconsin to kick three field goals uh, in their game. You know, So they were able to uh, slow that team down. Now, Wisconsin's also had their own offensive struggles. They also turned the ball over twice. Um, so I think Adrian slash our offense and that offensive line and all that is going to be the real key in the game if we're able to win this or not. Well, I think you're 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 on to part of what I'm thinking as well. In that, I also believe that that what our offense is able to do to their defense is going to be critical. Um, they have a player much like Michigan had great defensive ends, guys that are going to be playing on Sunday. They have a defensive end that's probably as good as Michigan's defensive end. And, um, and so they have some individual players that are going to wreak havoc on our offense because our offensive line has just not shown itself capable of consistently blocking the way they're supposed to block, right? That they are not able to pick up. And it, I'm not even talking about blitzes. I'm just talking about a guy rushing the passer, okay? I mean, sometimes uh, quick defensive ends are just running right around our, our offensive tackles, and it, and it just is unacceptable. Um, but I think we are going to struggle uh, much like we did in the game uh, at Michigan for the most part. We ended up having some big plays that happened against Michigan that helped us considerably. Uh, and we are at home, which certainly should help. I don't know what the weather forecast is yet, which I think is going to be a critical factor. We're getting into that period now where it's going to be cold uh, and potentially windy and stuff and maybe rainy uh, in Nebraska. And so if we end up with one of those kinds of days, that's where the ability to run the football becomes more important, which we can't do. And I think uh, Ramir Johnson should not be coming back. Okay, they, they actually admitted that he was diagnosed with a concussion. He's only been out for three weeks, right? Uh, to me, he should be on the shelf way longer than that before they let him play again. So I think even though they say he's cleared protocol, the fact is, is that is he going to be running with full aggression and attacking the line of scrimmage the way he needs to? I don't think so. And yet, you know, Held went out of his way to basically criticize all of his other backs in the press conference this week saying that uh, they are all, you know, really good and doing good things, but they're just simply not consistent enough. And that the re reason Ramir keeps reemerging as the starter is because he's consistent. And to me, that is a cop-out on the part of the coach. At, at some point, the coach needs to identify the player who is the second best and the player who's the third best and tell them very specifically, these are the reasons why you're not the starter. You know, don't say something generic like, oh, they're just not consistent enough. No, you need to tell them specifically, this is what they need to do better. You know, he talked about the fourth team guy or the fifth team guy and, and specifically said, this guy has to learn how to catch the football. Okay. Uh, which means that he's really struggling to catch the football. Uh, <laughs> if he actually mentioned it in the press conference. So I am very concerned about what, what we're going to get out of our running backs. I think, um, um, from what I understand, um, Adrian is hurt more than we know. And, um, uh, yes, he's going to play, but I think they're going to be calling a game plan in, in some regard to protect him, 
which means he's not going to be running like he was earlier in the year. And we've talked about this before, Alex, that that's the problem with this system is if you have to shrink your offense because your quarterback isn't 100%, um, then put a quarterback who is 100% in there. This would be a game where they should be playing Smothers and using Adrian as, as, as the emergency backup, give Adrian another week to uh, – but that would have been the thing to do at the beginning of the week, give Smothers all the uh, first-team reps and have Adrian be treated more like the second-team guy uh, so that he wouldn't have as much you know, banging around in practice either, right? So I, I, I don't uh, – there's nothing about what I've heard coming out of Lincoln that leads me to believe that we've made any big steps this week Mm. i hear what i think are setting up for a bunch of excuses after the game (laughs) oh yeah that's that's not a great sign i will say if the weather is bad uh like you were saying um from the stats uh they purdue is like one of the worst teams in the country i'm pretty sure in terms of rushing uh so they're a team that also can't rush the ball uh so well right that might play into our favor in a certain way well, no, but they have Jeff Brom as their head coach, and I would choose Jeff Brom over Scott Frost based on, based on uh, what I now have seen from both of those coaches in terms of readiness. Scott Frost, we win if we if we can get up twenty one points, then we have a very good chance of winning this game. But if the, if the if the score is within fourteen, uh, or it's within seven for sure, we're going to lose. <laughs> That's the way I feel. I mean. The only way that I see Nebraska winning this game is if we go out, we have success early, we're able to continue and maintain that success throughout the whole game, and we end up winning pretty much going away. Mm-hmm. Or, alternatively, it's a tight game where we fall behind. By halftime, we're, we're, we're behind, and then we're spending the whole second half trying to catch up, within get within seven, get within ten, whatever, and it's back and forth and back and forth. And then and then we lose in the end. You know, and it ends up being well, I, I kind of have an idea of what my what I think the score's gonna be, but but uh but I mean there is a scenario much like the Northwestern game where we come out uh, firing on all cylinders, all fired up, and execute at a high level like we're capable of, if we actually had a mentally tough team and we played with the same focus and 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 proper preparation like we did at Northwestern, then we beat this team easily, I think. Talent-wise, we've got way more talent than they do, mm-hmm. uh, except for four or five spots out of the 22. Right. All the other spots were more talented and were deeper. Mm-hmm. But our coach can't hold a candle to this other coach. Brom is a good coach. Okay, And, his, and he struggled last year because he uh, had a defensive coordinator who was Bob Diaco. <laughs> yes. Okay. And that, he was a one-year defensive coordinator, and Brom got rid of him. Again, Brom got duped just like Nebraska did with the Diaco image, right? Um, but um, now he's got a defensive coordinator that he believes in, and and they're playing good defense. So, um, I you know, until I see it out of Nebraska where they can actually – Hang in there, mentally tough, in a tight game, back and forth, and and win it. Okay, ultimately, I can't believe they can win that kind of game. I need to see them do it 
because I think the weakness is not just in the players, it's in the coaches. I think Scott doesn't know how to coach a game like that. He doesn't know how to coach tight games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand how you have to simplify and focus in on what it takes to get first downs. You know, we've gone over this so many times, I know it's a broken record. Yeah. Um, so looking ahead to that particular game, uh, on paper, you know, everything seems to be pointing Nebraska's direction that it's at home. Uh, Purdue's coming off of a, a tough loss to Wisconsin where they had five turnovers. Um, we have a bye week, extra time to get healthy and prepare for the game. So all of that would make one think that we should be able to win this. And I'm going to uh, be optimistic uh, because I kind of have to, because this is, this is a must win game for Scott because the next three games are all probable losses. So this is the one Scott has to win. And if he loses it, it's going to get ugly in Nebraska nation. So I'm going to predict that Nebraska wins. And I will say that it ends up being uh, 28 to 14. I, I love your optimism, and I, and I totally agree with everything you said. But I can't agree with it. <laughs> Not for the because because again, Alex, I, I, I'm tired of of hoping, you know, ba- uh, basing my premise on the hope that Scott's going to figure this out and get it right. Okay, he doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand what it takes to win. Okay, uh, unless he's kicking ass and everything's going great. He's he's great from the lead. Right. He can when the when the offense is running well and things are executing and all that and you're getting eight or nine yards a run. Well, shit, then everything looks like it's awesome. Right. Right. This system is phenomenal. But but when he when he's in a tight game, he does not know how to get first downs and just win. Okay, he doesn't know how to prepare his team to make the right decisions in those critical moments in a tight game. So I'm going to say Purdue's going to win it. And uh, it's going to be one of these games where we maybe come out and because we've had the two weeks and all that, and we've had some time to prepare and we're feeling a little healthier and a little chippier. I think we're going to come out and we're going to have some success and we're going to end up maybe taking, you know, getting seven, 14 point lead. Then they'll chip away at the lead. And by halftime, you know, Adrian will throw a pick or we'll have a 20 yard punt with uh, a minute and a half to go before halftime, and they'll end up getting, being able to get a score that will take them into the lead by three points. You know, it'll be 21-17 or something like that. Then, in the second half, going to be more of the same. They're going to come out. They're going to get the ball to start the second half. They're going to drive down and score. Now we're down, you know, 10 points or 14 points, and then we're chasing them the whole rest of the game. And then we'll score late after the, the, the game's been decided, and the game will be within a score, so it'll be another one of those close losses, and it'll be like uh, 35 to um, 21. No, excuse me, 35 to 31. I'm going to say 35 to 31, Purdue. All right. Well, we'll see how it plays out. We'll be crossing our fingers for our Nebraska Cornhuskers, of course. Uh, Yeah. Oh, trust me, I'm going to be rooting really hard for them. And they have to win it. You're you're exactly right. This is a must win for Scott for so many reasons. And he should win it. He's got more talent. Yep. If he knew how to coach uh, a team to to win, then we w- I wouldn't be concerned. Right. You know, I, I really wouldn't be that concerned. I mean, <laughs> if well, if Tom Osborne had this talent, we'd be kicking this team's ass by by four scores. Right. 
if we were running Tom Osborne's, you know, staff, Tom Osborne's basic system, we'd be kicking ass with this team. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, but so. it, it, that's why it's hard to get another Tom Osborne, right? Because he's one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, well, I know. They don't come along well, I know, every but I mean, decade. Okay. I, <laughs> I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of, you know, even other, uh, other coaches. Well, um, if Frank Solich had this talent and his Ohio staff was our coaches right now, we win this game comfortably. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're saying we, we don't need anything fancy. We just need like solid football fundamentals, basically, with this talent. And exactly. we beat teams with worse talent. Right. Right. But but we put ourselves, like we did last week um, against uh, Minnesota, we put ourselves in situations where, um, you know, we don't take advantage of what we can do. And then when another team throws a wrench at us, like Minnesota did with the jumbo offensive line sets, um, we're unable to adjust and make them pay for being trickery, you know, for being goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. All right. It's frustrating to me. Uh, going to the other games of week nine, I'm gonna kind of going to speed run through uh, some of these, even though there are actually are a lot of good games uh, this weekend. We've got uh, Iowa versus Wisconsin and Penn State versus Ohio State in the Big Ten. And then we've also got uh, wow. Texas Baylor, Georgia, Florida, and Ole Miss versus Auburn. Um, so now we're, we're kind of getting to that later part of the season where the bigger teams are starting to play each other. Um, you know, that Penn State, Ohio State game in, you know, most seasons would be, you know, the two top teams of that division, you know, clashing against each other. But uh, with Penn State kind of falling down a bit, um, it's not quite that that same uh, clash of Titans it usually is. No, I agree. And I, I, I would expect in that game, Ohio State wins comfortably. Um now, um, and then we have what was the other one? Oh, Iowa versus Wisconsin. That's a huge battle. Mm-hmm. That's a huge battle. I think Wisconsin wins that. Could be, could be with uh, with them uh, coming off the win over Purdue, and uh, I think Iowa won their game this week, but I don't think it was against anybody special. I don't know if they played. I can't remember. But um, but um, you're right. Uh, if they if they did play they they won they won you know it wasn't like another upset or anything oh. and um uh, but wisconsin is that iowa wisconsin game where's that located okay so so i just did a quick research um iowa actually did have a bye week like us um so they did have two okay. weeks to prepare for this game but it is at wisconsin at wisconsin see i think this is a huge game for wisconsin i think their crowd is going to be just rambunctious rabbit rabid and uh i think it's gonna be a tough day for iowa Mm -hmm. all right i'll go the other direction just to uh create some interest Uh, i'm going to say that uh, after the the tough loss that iowa had uh to purdue and then watching wisconsin beat purdue it's kind of interesting to have them lose to purdue wisconsin beats purdue now wisconsin plays against the team that lost purdue iowa um right but I think with that extra week to prepare um, and Wisconsin's own struggles on offense, like you said, that if, you know, if uh, if Purdue had been playing better and had been able to take advantage of Wisconsin's mistakes, they very well might have won. And that's kind of Iowa's M.O., right? So, uh, so yeah, you're right. Interesting to see those two philosophies go head to head. 
Yeah, you're right. And, and you know, the brain in me says Iowa's going to win this game, okay, because Iowa's the better team, the better coach team, the more mature team, all those things. They make less mistakes, just like you said. But this is being played at Camp Randall on the heels of a Wisconsin uh, momentum-building victory. And I think, uh, I think Wisconsin will wisely have a very – very conservative game plan where they pound the rock and um, and basically um, try to make Iowa stop them. Mm-hmm. A little bit like Minnesota did to us. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but the big game of week nine that we're going to give our last prediction for is the Michigan-Michigan State game, a rivalry that we are very well familiar with um, coming from Michigan and growing up there, at least for me. Um, and it is at Michigan State this year. Um, Michigan's ranked sixth, Michigan state's ranked eighth. So they're, uh, very close in, uh, ranking and national perception as well. So I think, I believe game day is going there as well. So, you know, that's going to be getting a lot of attention. Um, and, uh, I haven't followed Michigan state as closely this year. Um, but it being at home, I think does definitely give them advantage. If this was at Michigan, I'd pick Michigan easy, but this is at Michigan state it makes it more interesting. Well, I kind of agree with you, Alex, because our defense was really able to make them one-dimensional. We were able to take away that great running back that they have and basically shut them down, and their offense really struggled against us. And uh, they have a good defense, but not a great defense. And I have a feeling that Michigan's offense is starting to find themselves, and with every passing week, Michigan's um, uh, young offensive talent is getting more mature and getting better. And so I'm going to I'm I lean towards the blue in this in this particular matchup, even though it is at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking back at their Michigan State's schedule here, real quick, um, they really haven't played too many tough teams. They did play Miami earlier this year, um, who has you know had kind of a bit of a disappointing season for their standards, and they have Ohio State and Penn State up ahead on their schedule. So um, I feel like. Looking at that, uh, Michigan has been more tested than Michigan State so far and managed to remain undefeated. Um, so I think I will also lean in Michigan's direction, but I think it will be close. Uh, and Michigan State will make it interesting. So I'll say that uh, Michigan ends up winning 35-28 to 28 over Michigan State. Okay. I'm going to say that it's a little bit more lopsided than that. I think Michigan's going to win by more points than that uh, and maybe a little bit higher scoring. So I'll say Michigan 35, but Michigan State only gets um, 21. All right. Well, we'll see which of us uh, ends up being right or if both of us are wrong. You know, um, you know, this, you go. this past weekend was kind of like a, one of those weekends where there weren't as many you know, top 25 matchups. You know, it doesn't look as interesting on paper, but then there ended up being all these upsets, which seems to be what tends to happen with uh, college football. You get surprised uh, in these uh, weeks that seem to be quieter. Yes, that is true. Absolutely true. Uh, and it's because you're dealing with student athletes. And, you know, kids who are dealing with, you know, midterms and girlfriend problems and all the other things that come with being college students. And so a lot of weird things start to happen. Yeah, very true. 
All right. Well, thank you all out there for listening to this episode of the podcast. We'll be back next week to hopefully be talking about uh, Nebraska's victory over Purdue. We'll see. Uh, If you enjoyed listening, you can reach out to us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. You can also find us if you search for College Football Throwdown on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, We would love to see you leave a rating or review there. We always love hearing from the fans, knowing what to improve on. So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. Until next week, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.